fabulous to be back, um, obviously, and, and also to see so many people that keep on turning up year after year. That's um, immensely, but immensely gratifying. Uh, and you're probably wondering, those of you that are regulars, why we've called you back a week earlier uh, than normal. Um, seems appropriate, this is the 5th of December, so we are the eve of St Nicholas, and it seems a very appropriate time. St Nicholas, obviously, Santa Claus, um, Sinterklaas uh, from the Dutch Sinterklaas. But most importantly, this is a very, very important centenary. Tomorrow is the centenary, 100 years since the founding of Finland. Finland was granted its independence on the 6th of December 1917, and this is extremely important for everything that I'm going to talk about tonight. Because what I'm talking about is this. In... In 1582, um, the Scottish Parliament issued an act against the singing of carols, whether in church or outside it. In Scotland, in 1582, no carols. By contrast, in Scandinavia, 1582 marked the publication of what was to become one of the most bizarrely influential carol publications, literally, of all time. Um, and if you look uh, behind you there... Um, I've translated the, the Latin on the left. This is the, the title page of this document. Pious church and scholastic songs of the venerable churchmen of territories in the control of the Swedish crown under the scrutiny of a priest who edited it, that's Jakob Sormelainen, in accordance with the exacting requirements of the Church of God and the School of Turku in Finland and with appropriate humility, this is the work of Theodoricus Petri of Nyland, and it's published in Greifswald in 1582. And this is the publication that I'll be discussing. So first of all, let's see how you might uh, create a carol. So here, appropriate to the day, here's a 12th century hymn for St Nicholas, Intonent Odier, Voces Ecclesiae. Today, let church voices resound. So that's a 12th century hymn for St Nicholas. Now, by the 13th century, it appears to different words. And those words are, Today may children's voices resound in joyful praise of him, the one who is born for us. Now, what that essentially means is that oh, during the course of a century, it goes from being a hymn for St Nicholas on the 6th of December to being a hymn for the Holy Innocents on the 28th of December. All you've done is changed the text. Um, 
So we've moved it on a century and we've moved it, well, we've moved it to the octave of Christmas, taken it away from St Nicholas, and now in the 14th century, give it a rhythm. So now we've got the tune and we've got our new words to take it to the 28th of December and then it becomes this. That you may recognise, but I say it's a, it's a beautiful and very steady transition from a piece of chant that you don't necessarily notice, and then the words kind of think, oh, I recognise those words, and then you put the rhythm to it, and then it becomes very clear where we are. Uh, and where we are is in the 14th century. And where we are also is with a very nice little device there that those of you that know it well might have been surprised about, the et de vir, 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 et de vir, vir, Et de Virgineo. Many of you might know that, that motif repeated three times. But in fact, it's meant to be twice, three times, then twice, then another time. So when the version that you probably know, when in 1924 Gustav Holst gets his hands on it, he goes, no, 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 it's got to be regular. Et de Vir, 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 Et de Vir. That's the one that you know. It sounds like this. And... That has its own charm, but it puts it very much in a strict metre, and that's clearly not what was required in the 14th century, which gave you the 3, 2, 1, which gives you the momentum. Now, brilliantly, when this, uh, when this was uh, edited um, here uh, um, in 1854, the editors here recognised the fact that it should have a 3, 2, 1 metre to it, and that's the way that it sounds. Let the song be begun, for the battle is done, and the victory won, and the foe is scattered, and the risen shattered. Sing of joy, 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 sing of joy, joy. And that, I think, is a magnificent example of, of how you create a carol. You make it relevant 
um, for each generation. You make it relevant for each nation. You make it relevant for every feast. But the point is they're completely transportable. They can become anything you want. And the version you've heard, the beautiful 19th century version of it, still has its own authenticity. Uh, and brilliantly, as I say, uh, understood. They really understood the original meter of the 1582 P.A. Canciones print. Um, but uh, in, in, um, in 1854, uh, as I say, uh, Reverends Helmore and Neil published this translation and harmonisation. But what they did, and what you might have noticed there, is they actually went further than just changing it a little bit. They actually changed it completely into an Easter song. So take a Christmas, if you look at it, that's what it's all about. Again, it's very easy to let these things sort of drift over you, but that's quite a massive change. So Helmore and Neil, they both knew their stuff, and they were both uh, ordained priests. They went, hang on, this seems to us to fit much more an Easter song, and so wrote words appropriately. Uh, but they respected some of the music of 1582, but then they changed it from a Christmas song into an Easter song. So, uh, to return to that title page of this fabulous, uh, I think, um, print from 1582, Pie Canciones Ecclesiastiche et Scholastiche Veterum Episcoporum. Um, this, as you can see there, uh, here's the man's name. From here. Um, this is Diedrich Pearson of Nyland, uh, in its Latinized form, Theodoricus Petri Nylandensis, who was born in the city of Porvu, which is about 30 miles east of Helsinki. Now, in today's terms, I ask you to keep up, this is what, what he did with his life. So he was born in Finland into a family that was Danish. He grew up in the Russian Federation, studied in Germany, where he published this, worked in Sweden, and died in Poland. That's how different the map looked in those days. He didn't move, actually, that far, but that was him. Born in Finland, of Danish stock, grew up in the Russian Federation, studied in Germany, worked in Sweden, and died in Poland. Now, in 1582, you can see just the date there, in 1582, when Petri was a student at the University of Rostock, and in his very early 20s, he published this anthology, which is of 74 songs. And he published that in Greifswald, which is now in northeastern Germany, but then was under Swedish rule. And all but a dozen of the songs in this collection of the Pie Canciones were single-line melodies, and two dozen of them were songs for Christmastide. Now, Finland was under Swedish rule, and the turn into the 17th century was a difficult one for a well-born Roman Catholic like our man Petri, since the prevailing wind carried Lutheranism with it. Um, now, when the Pie Canciones collection was published, the headmaster uh, of the cathedral school in Turku, uh, on the southwest coast of Finland, this is um, the man here, uh, Jakko Sommelainen, um, or in Finnish, uh, well, in Finnish and uh, Jacobus Finno, uh, in the Latinized form. Finno was granted an extended period of study leave by the Bishop of Turku for the two years each side of 1580. And during that time, Finno produced a number of religious works in the Finnish language, a prayer book and a hymnal among them. And Finno also made changes to some of the texts that were included 
in the Pie Canciones. So all of the 74 songs in the Pie Canciones already existed. There was nothing new in this anthology. Um, but what Finno did was that he wanted to make them fit Protestant views of the Swedish church. And considering how well-educated Finno was, he was a headmaster of the cathedral school in Turku, considering how well-educated well he was, it seems odd that his changes were so makeshift. Uh, clearly, if you just substitute the name Jesus for the name of the Blessed Virgin Mary in a song, it's a less-than-elegant solution to the problem. Yet that's what he did on a regular basis, and it does strike me next to... Sometimes it works, sometimes you get away with it, and sometimes, as you can imagine, it just doesn't. Um, here's a song that uh, we'll sing you now. There are various different, uh, various different sections in the 1582 uh, Pie Canciones. As I say, section one is the obvious one, which is 24, 24 songs for Christmas. Then there are nine for Passiontide and Easter. Then there's one for Pentecost. Then there are three for Trinity Sunday, two for Holy Communion, four songs of prayer and then a whopping 14 on the frailty and miseries of human life, <laughs> 10 on school life, 2 on peace, 3 songs of history, and 2 carols for spring. So 24 for Christmas, that's by far the best representative, as I say, closely followed by uh, 14 on the frailty and miseries of human life. Anyway, here's one um, that we'll hear now from the De Concordia section. This is, there are just two uh, songs about peace, and this is one of them. Uh, which we'll sing now. So that's one of the two songs from the De Concordia, the concerning peace section. Now, the man that decided um, to set this uh, to harmonies and to claim it uh, for Christmas was one George Woodward. And Reverend George Woodward was many things, uh, a fabulous, uh, to my mind, a fabulous uh, musician, a fabulous writer of... Um, uh, of, of carols and hymns in, uh, words to hymns in general uh, but what Woodward also was was a campanologist, he was a very keen bell ringer and so he comes across this peace song and he goes no, 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 
we need this for Christmas. And that long melisma that you get at the beginning, all those notes just to O or to hack, so we can do something with that. And I know exactly what we're going to do. Ding, ding, ding dong, ding, ding, dong, ding. This is the man also, you will remember him from Ding Dong, Merrily on High. Same man, finds a French instrumental 16th century dance tune and thinks, mm, we can bell that up as well. So this is his big, this is, this is, uh, this is, this is Woodward's big thing. So as you will hear now, he, um, he adds the harmonies to it and he gets rigged of that uh, long melisma at the start, which suits the piece bit of the original, but he's now turned it into Christmas and made it into a peal of bells. are quite remarkable. Um, I won't hear a word against it. I think it's a beautiful thing that's of a time and of a place, and in particular giving us his love of bells and transforming, I think, a beautiful uh, peace song into a Christmas tide song. And notice, without changing a single note of the melody, the melody remains absolutely intact. And what he does, again, has its own authenticity. Uh, a purist, but I mean, look, a purist has no, has nothing to do in the world of carols anyway, so let's dismiss that, <laughs> as we have done many years ago. Um, uh, this, so the book I'm talking about, just to give you an idea, my facsimile, my trusted facsimile, it's quite small, but in the facsimile, there's lots of white space. There's no white space in the original. <laughs> I should be a hand model, shouldn't I, really? Um, but this is, uh, this is the only surviving copy of it, and that's how big it is. It's absolutely tiny. It's the size of, you can imagine it, your old-fashioned pocket-sized prayer book. That's what we're talking about. Um, wonderful, wonderful document. So there's just one surviving copy of this, 1582 Pierre Canciones. It's five and three-quarter inches by three and three-quarter inches, if such, such stats interest you. Um, and it's been through a lot of hands. Uh, if you look at the top left there, Eric Linning. Bottom left, Eric Linderstedt. And then top right, <coughs> latterly, by the Swedish composer Per Friegel, who worked at the end of the 18th century and the first half of the 19th century. And then the volume was brought to England by George Gordon, who was Queen Victoria's envoy and minister in Stockholm. Uh, Gordon had been appointed uh, chargé d'affaires following the death of Sir Thomas Cartwright a week after Easter in 1850. So he was parachuted uh, over to Stockholm um, quickly. 
Uh, and it was during this year of his deputising as an ambassador in Sweden that Gordon obtained the PA Canciones. As you can see, bottom right there, uh, he signed it, G, you can see G.J.R. Gordon, Stockholm, 1853. But in that very year, he also gave it to the priest and scholar, the Reverend John Mason Neal. Neal then passed it to the choirmaster and Anglican priest, Reverend Thomas Helmore, whose son, Arthur, inherited it. Then, in 1908, top left, Arthur Neal sells it to the Plain Song and Medieval Music Society, from where, bottom right, it was brought by the British Museum in 1926. So it does the rounds in Sweden. Uh, a chance finding, this is the bit of the story that I don't think anybody knows yet, which I'm desperate trying to find out, how does this get uh, into the hands of G.J. Gordon, but brilliantly it does, and he brings it over and gives it to the right people, eventually, as I say, getting to the Plain Song and Medieval Music Society, and then ultimately to the British Museum in, 19, uh, in, in um, 1926, which is where uh, it still resides in the British Library. Here's one that you'll know, uh, in Dulce Jubilo. It's one of the 24 Christmas songs in the P.A. Canciones. Uh, it's a 13th century song originally, uh, but it became associated in the early 14th century um, with the German mystic Heinrich Zeuser uh, at an early stage of its existence. Um, after several hours of meditation, Zeuser uh, envisioned himself gambling with angels, and Zeuser imagined a seraphic leader of the dance who led a song from within the gyrating company using a call and response format. That's when it becomes closely associated with the early 14th century, but it's earlier than that. By the 15th century, Indulce Jubilo has grown into a four-verse hymn, and it's also achieved its macaronic form. In other words, certain passages of the Latin are then substituted with the local language. Now, originally that was German, and then it transfers its way all around Europe. So by the time that it gets here to the Pia Canciones, uh, it's in Swedish. The, as you can see here, uh, you go along in your Latin, and then the Swedish appears, and then back to the Latin, and so on and so forth. In Two people, Helmore and Neil. Um, Reverend Helmore was the master of the children at the Chapel Royal in London, and he was the musical brains of the Helmore and Neil outfit. Um, so Reverend Neil was the words, Reverend Helmore was the music. But Helmore's knowledge of late 16th century musical notation left something to be desired, particularly in the area of rhythmic transcription. It's easy to say this uh, now, looking back. Um, 150 years ago, but it's really quite, um, quite a basic error that he made. Um, if you look at the uh, 
couple of symbols bottom left here on the first page. <coughs> Those two there. Now, I mean, I think even now you might recognise, if you can read musical notation, uh, you'll recognise um, the square one there on, on the left as a, uh, a brief. Uh, the diamond one five in as a semi-brief, and those two diamonds with the, with the, the stem on, they're minims. In other words, they're short notes. Now, to be fair, if it, they'd been square notes with a stem, they'd have been very long notes. So rather than being da-da, they'd be da-da. And that's what um, Reverend Helmore did. Uh, he mistranscribed those. Now, Neil had already written the words and was a bit puzzled when all of a sudden there was this thing that didn't quite fit the metre. So he jumped to it and rather than going, haven't you got something wrong, went, no, 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 I can add a couple of, I can add a couple of words to that. Um, and that's precisely what he does, bless him. So it's going along as it should do, and then all of a sudden, news, news, because of the, <laughs> the mistranscription of the, of the long notes by Reverend Hillman. And what I love um, about that is that something that, starts off as a mistranscription actually becomes the hook of the carol. It's the bit that you actually can't do without. And again, that's very carol-like to me. And it's very, I say, very easy to... We've all mistranscribed things many, many times. Um, but I do like the fact that one man's um, transcriptional solecism is another man's window of opportunity. So <laughs> Neil, Neil rocks in, adds those two words there, uh, and it sounds like this. If you have a friend like that, who can bail you out with that fabulous gesture? Some of you will remember 1975. Nobody here, obviously, but some of us near the centre might remember 1975. Uh, and indeed the success of In Dolce Ubelo for Mike Oldfield. That, uh, I, well, uh, it's indelibly fixed on my uh, memory. I was a young teenager at the time. I don't know what I thought of it at the time, but I've become... Uh, less attracted to it over the years. But anyway, the folk rock version of uh, that medieval dance song peaked at number four during the Christmas of 1975, if you remember. Um, but uh, Mike Oldfield's instrumental version of Indulci uh, was taken so seriously by the recording industry in the mid-1970s as a proper piece of music that by the time it was printed, the vinyl was printed in Italy, uh, it was attributed to J.S. Bach and not <laughs> to the P.A. Cantiones or to the 13th century at all. Uh, it could have been to any of those things, but no, it was, it was attributed to Bach. That could be, I suppose, because if you think of a carol service, it might end with J.S. Bach's in Dulce Below on the organ. So there is, there is some contact there, but it's, I, I love the fact that the record industry thought, this is a serious piece of music. Oh, let's put Bach. That'll do it. <laughs> so these two men... <laughs> Helmore and Neil, having got hold of the P.A. Canciones from our deputy ambassador, or our ambassador who was deputising in Stockholm, pretty quickly, given that they only got the book in 1853, then published two volumes of songs. One, The Carols for Christmas Tide, 
and secondly, the carols for Eastertide. Christmastide on the left was in 1853, Eastertide on the right was in 1854. <coughs> That's pretty swift work. Now, Neil was a very fine scholar. This is our words man, as it were. Neil was a fine scholar, a polyglot, and a prolific author, though a controversial clergyman. Um, his view on a successful collection of carols was a polystylistic one, and I have to say it absolutely accords with mine, even though this is a long time ago. And uh, Neil wrote, It is impossible at one stretch to produce a quantity of new carols of which words and music alike shall be original. They must be the gradual accumulation of centuries, the offerings of different epochs, of different countries, of different minds, to the same treasury of the church. None but an empiric would venture to make a set to order. And indeed, they did not. And as we've seen, one of the things they do do is also they don't necessarily respect, for instance, the original meaning or the original text of the carols. If it's appropriate for another time, then they were used for another time. Here's another one which you will uh, recognise. Resonet in Laudibus. You might know it as Josef Lieber, Josef Mein, where it's, it's a 13th century German song. Uh, it appears as, as Josef Lieber, Josef Mein. Um, it's a Wechselgesang, in other words, an exchange song, which really means that you have people, uh, musicians, instrumentalists and singers, separated out in various places, places in the church or in the hall, and they exchange the music between each other. And probably what they did was also exchange the language. So you've got the German corner here singing their German words and the Latin corner there singing the Latin words. A wonderful uh, spectacle of using the space. Um, the other equally colourful tradition that Josef Lieber was part of uh, was that of the Wiegenlied, in other words, the cradle song, where a, a brightly coloured, garish effigy of the Christ child was, was put into a cot, taken up to the high altar, and while the singing was going on, the priest would very roughly, and in time to the music, rock the cot. So there's the exchange song with the different languages and the different placements. There's a cradle song with the, on Christmas Eve of the priest going hell for leather, rocking the cradle. Uh, and it, uh, in its original form, uh, in the Pie Canciones, not its original form, but the original form in the Pie Canciones, uh, to resonant in Laudibus, it sounds like this.
So it's gone through its 13th century, 14th century, and ultimately their 16th century form. And then Helmore and Neil get their hands on it, and I think do something extraordinary with it. They do what's very rarely done these days, they write a through composed character. They don't, again, they don't change any of the notes of the tune, but they do change the harmonies it goes along to try and reflect the words. So this is, this is Neil trying to do roughly a translation, pretty much, of the original, and Helmore trying to reflect that in the, in the music. And also this wonderful bit, as you'll see when you get to the end of the carol, the second line from the bottom, that Emmanuel moment, a really big moment, pulento, sing it slowly, let's hear the name and then carry on our tempo. But this is, I think, absolute perfection in terms of the 19th century carol. from the Pier Cancionis. Um, the vast majority of the Pier Cancionis has medieval roots, as indeed does this, Puer Natus in Bethlehem. This is one of the 13th century ones. Uh, you might know harmonised arrangements by Michael Pretorius. You might know uh, a J.S. Bach harmonisation of it. Uh, everybody seemingly had a go. Um, it also appears in the second edition of the Pier Cancionis in 1625 in a uh, four-voice version. But in this point... 
In the Pierre Cantieri's of 1582, it's just one of half a dozen settings for two voices. The vast majority are for single voice, but this one is uh, for two voices. As you can see here, tenor and bassus, those are your two uh, parts. Um, and first of all, let's hear the tune. And the tune actually is in the bassus part, in the lower part. <coughs> you'll hear is this tenor part, this second part being added. And the reason I think this is interesting, because this strikes me as being a written down example of how an improvisation might occur. Because I think although the vast majority of the, the, the hymns, the songs, the carols in the Pia Canciones are single line songs, I'm quite sure that they would have been improvised. And when they were improvised, I suspect it was something like this. So this, to me, whether or not it was intended to be so, and don't forget that a lot of it was compiled by this Finnish headmaster, so it will have some kind of educational purpose. It strikes me that this is, you're told, this is how you might improvise a simple tune, a descant, we would now call it, above uh, the original. persuasive indication of how one might improvise an added part against a well-known tune. Don't forget the tune would have been well-known, and as soon as something's well-known, you can improvise against it. Here's uh, another song that George Radcliffe Woodward, um, this is our bell-ringing man, um, he got his hands on uh, this one, uh, well, he got his hands on the Pier Canciones at the end of the 19th century when he was presenter at St Barnabas's Pimlico. And here's, uh, first of all, here's what um, Puer Nobis Nascitor sounds like in the Pier Canciones. Oh. 
versions of this, uh, but the version we're dealing with here is Unto Us is Born a Son. Uh, the harmony here, as you can see, is by the Reverend George Palmer. He was the choir master at St Mary's <coughs> Primrose Hill from 1900, and his, uh, his big thing was introducing plain chant in English to the Anglican Church. And here what he's doing is taking the Pia Canciones and turning that uh, into an anglicised version. So, in 1910, our man, Reverend George Woodward, because by now the Pia Canciones was in the, uh, belonged to the Plain Song and Medieval Music Society, uh, George Woodward decided he was going to make an edition. Uh, and that's the title page of it there. And he explained in his preface that he thought originally he was going to make a facsimile, just simply to copy the original, but he decided that wouldn't be as useful as him trying to reflect the original notation in terms of its look, but to give it sort of modern clefts and key signatures and things like that. So what he ends up with is something this. It's, I suppose I might call it a diplomatic transcription, if that's the technical term for it. But it has some validity, but that's what he was trying to do. He wanted normal choir masters to be able to use this material but he wanted them to know where it had come from and roughly what it had looked like. So he took the difficult notation aspects out of it, but still preserved uh, what he thought were the important bits of the original notation. I actually think it's really rather beautiful. Um, since um, we're, we're here, I've let that sort of... I don't know what the expression is, cat out of the bag or the lion out of the cage, but anyway, um, you're looking at Tempus Addis Floridum. This is in the Woodward version. Here's how it looks in the original Pia Canciones. So, first of all, let's hear this. So, as you can see, the time of blossoms is here for the flowers grow up. Nothing at all to do with Christmas, and why should it have? But this is one of the spring songs in the Pia Canciones. Um, another man associated with St Mary's Primrose Hill was Percy Dearmer, um, who you might uh, know if you've ever read the Parsons Handbook. You will certainly know of his existence because he was the prime mover behind the English hymnal a very important churchman at the beginning of the 20th century. And he translates it as you have here, respecting the uh, text of the original. <coughs> Oh, yeah. 
I absolutely shouldn't because it's not my job. I'm a mere musician. I, I couldn't possibly comment on uh, how good words are or are not. I'm a great fan of Percy Dimmer. Just let me know. The English hymnal, I think, is one of those great creations, as is the Parsons Handbook. Um, and then there's this. <laughs> I wouldn't mind so much if, in the Oxford Book of Carols, he didn't justify what you've just heard, his translation. And he goes... Uh, this is a free translation of Tempestatis Floridum, the spring carol, which Neil unfortunately turned into a Christmas carol by writing his rendering of the legend of Good King Wenceslas. We have therefore reprinted the proper tune here with the suggestion that it should be sung as a spring carol and that Good King Wenceslas might be gradually dropped. <laughs> it's a bold claim. I think if I were going to do that, I wouldn't necessarily offer that as the alternative. I don't know. Rhyming time with time. It's a little bit lazy, apart from anything else. So where did the idea of Wenceslas come from? Um, as I've said, John Mason Neal, our wordsman, he resolved not to foist on the market entirely new creations. He wanted to make good stuff out of old stuff. Uh, and uh, he modernised a dozen carols from the P.A. Canciones to make them fit for Christmas. And in ten cases, this involved indeed translating the words from Latin to English. But in two cases, the tenth and eleventh carols, Neil transformed spring songs into Christmas carols. Now, it all came from this. Three years before Neil had become involved in making the P.A. Canciones in English, he published a book called Deeds of Faith, Stories for Children from Church History. A ninth of which was the legend of as you can see, St. Wenceslas. The Holy Christmas Tide was drawing nigh. I won't go on, but you can imagine. It's a beautiful, beautiful, it's not very long, and I do urge that you read it. But um, to give you an idea, <coughs> top right, the ground sloped down from the castle towards the forest. <coughs> Here and there on the side of the hill, a few bushes, grey with moss, broke the unvaried sheet of white, and as the king turned his eyes in that direction, a poor man, and the moonshine was bright enough to show his misery and his rags, came up to these bushes and seemed to pull somewhat from them. Um, <coughs> Wenceslas is the German form of the Bavarian name Václav. Uh, Václav the Good was an early 10th century duke, not a king. And that's the important point about good King Wenceslas, is that he wasn't a king, he was a duke. Um, and he was good insofar as his brother was awful. In fact, his brother killed him for his title. So good by comparison and a duke, not a king. But nevertheless, the legend of Wenceslas, I think, is a good one to make into a Christmas song, because it's about King Wenceslas, who goes out to find Rudolf the swineherd, uh, and, and basically, to, essentially, to, to give him money, to give him food. And so great was the virtue of this saint of the Most High, such was the fire of love that was kindled in him, that as he trod in these steps, Otto gained life and heat. He felt not the wind, he heeded not the frost, the footprints glowed as with a holy fire, and zealously he followed the king on his errand of mercy. And this is translated into the form that you know it now, and I do think it's worth singing.
wonderful image uh, of planting in those footsteps and of the ground becoming warm and flowers springing up. This was a medieval image of the, the Virgin Mary and of Jesus. Wherever they trod, wherever they stepped, the ground became warmer and flowers sprang up and beautifully reflected here uh, in this legend of Wenceslas. Uh, yet, in 1911, Carol historian Edmonston Duncan praised the original spring, spring song, Tempusalis Floridum, and then he observed of its delightful tune that this we foolishly sing to Dr. Neil's doggerel. <laughs> In 1885, A.H. Bullen, the publisher, snarled, one of the most popular carols is the piece beginning Good King Wenceslas Looked Out, written by the Reverend Dr. Neil. The language is poor and commonplace to the last degree. I really can't agree with that. Uh, you get to 1959, and Eric Routley, the musicologist, is rather, uh, gives it a rather more favourable crit. Indeed, Routley seems to be making not so much Wenceslas a saint as actually John George, uh, John, George John Robert Gordon. This is our, uh, deputy, our ambassador who was deputising in Stockholm, uh, uh, Queen Victoria's charge d'affaires. And of that, uh, Routley says, Few of Her Majesty's envoys have done the country such signal service as did this Mr. Gordon. After all, the man who was primarily responsible for our singing Good King Wenceslas deserves mention as one of our more conspicuous national benefactors. <laughs> and I, that I absolutely have to agree with. Um, to wind up, the, you, what I've concentrated on here, because it's what one has to do, is the medieval precursors uh, of the songs in the P.A. Cancionis and the way in which the, particularly the 19th and the 20th century have dealt with them. But there's one piece that I've known, well, since I've known the P.A. Cancionis, which is, is many years now, 
uh, that doesn't get an outing, and I really feel that it should, and that's the piece that you have here. First of all, apart from Gaudete, which you heard at the beginning, which is in four voices, the only other piece that's in four voices in the Pie Canciones is this piece here, Jesu Dulcis Memoria. Um, it's a four-voice piece. It's part of the Holy Communion part of the Pie Canciones, sweet memory of Jesus, giving true joy to the heart. And all I'm doing here is just making a case and saying that a lot of the Pie Canciones we know, even if you don't think you know it, you know an awful lot of it. But one piece that is very, very rarely performed is this. Uh, even Woodward goes, I haven't bothered to score it up because I don't think it's very good. Well, they're wrong. Mm-hmm. 